Mrs. A.J. DePriest is the director of Proposal Logic. Proposal Logic is a woman-owned, minority-owned small business located just outside Nashville, Tennessee, serving federal contractors with proposal management and technical writing expertise. Since 2011, AJ has served more than 150 federal contractors on proposals for more than 200 federal agencies. While average win rates for federal proposal developers rest around 35%, AJ finished 2020 with an astounding 100% win rate for her clients. So stop losing conventionally and start winning unconventionally. If you are a federal contractor and you are ready to win government contracts, contact AJ at 615-474-2123. Again, that is 615-474-2123, or you can email her at aj at proposalogic.com. Again, that is aj at proposalogic.com, P-R-O-P-O-S-A-L-O-G-I-C.com. Welcome to the Liberty, Leadership, and Lies with Larry Linton podcast, coming to you from the Goat Locker studio in Sevierville, Tennessee. Be sure and check us out and like us on Facebook and Instagram, and follow us on Telegram, as well as on the website of libertyleadershipandlies.com. You can subscribe to notifications on the website to follow the blog there. If you would like to contact the show, just send an email to larry at libertyleadershipandlies.com. Again, that is Larry at LibertyLeadershipAndLies.com. Now, on to the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Liberty, Leadership, and Lies. This week's topic is Liberty. Today, we're going to explore a couple of the options that are still available to us that we can use to reclaim some of the liberty that has been stolen from us by an overreaching federal government. Before we get into the topic, there are a couple of updates from events late last week and this past weekend that didn't make it in the weekend update that I'd like to let you know about. First, I'd like to let you know I finally had that face-to-face with my state senator, Mr. Art Swan. We met for a cup of coffee at a small coffee shop in Maryville. It was a very cordial and informative meeting. We do have some philosophical differences on a couple of different topics, but on most topics we are aligned. Some inside baseball information was exchanged. Apparently, the problem is that even though there is a supermajority of Republicans, the party itself is definitely not united. Maybe a slimmer majority might force them to work together better. That's just some food for thought. So the next election cycle, we Tennesseans should focus on not only removing those that are trans-publicans or rhinos, but we should focus on removing any of the many tyrants that believe in government control of our lives, regardless of political party. We need to focus on electing those servant leaders that are aligned with the goals of individual liberty, smaller government, protecting our God-given rights, and who will adhere to constitutional principles and truly follow their oaths. When we parted ways, we agreed to more meetings in the future, and I am looking forward to those. I'm still looking to get a one-on-one with State Representative Carr here in the near future. I've sent him another email this morning. Hopefully he'll respond. 
but every constituent should attempt to engage their elected representatives frequently. After all, they are elected by us. We are their employers, although they often think the role is reversed, especially those that started making a career out of being in elected office. So, Senator Swan, if you're listening to this, let's get together again soon. Maybe we can talk more about the illegal alien crisis that has arrived in Knoxville and Chattanooga. The next item I would like to update the audience on is related to the usurper-in-chief importing his future Democrat voters into our state in the middle of the night. As reported in the Tennessee Journal last Friday, Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton and Tennessee Senate Speaker Randy McNally are assembling a joint study committee on refugee issues. The forming of this committee is coming on the heels of numerous reports that the usurper's administration is flying illegal aliens into Knoxville and into Chattanooga, and all in the middle of the night, and then transporting them goodness knows where in the state. In fact, there are reports that some of these illegal aliens are also being transported to our neighbors in the north, in Kentucky. So to begin with, the Joint Study Committee on Refugee Issues is inappropriately named. These people being flown into our state and other states across the Republic in the dead of night are not refugees. They are illegal aliens. Period. No matter their age, they entered this country illegally. And if you follow some of the news reports over the past couple of months, they're just some of them are just being dropped over the wall by the coyotes without a concern for the repercussions of the fall or any injuries that could happen. And all of this behavior is encouraged by the usurper-in-chief and his radical administration, the borderless administration. But our elected officials at the county level and in Nashville do not need to play by the rules of the game established by Washington, D.C. and apply euphemisms to words that make it easier for the electorate to swallow. There will be people that swallow this, too. They will never acknowledge the fact that the Democrat Party, by encouraging this invasion along our southern border, is diluting law-abiding Americans of their birthright of the privilege of being a citizen in the greatest country on the face of the planet. Anyway, when I saw the article about the Joint Study Committee being created, I immediately fired off an email to all of the members, and I closed it with a statement that I could provide them an example of how to live up to an oath to the Constitution by pointing out my service in uniform for 30 years. Well, let me tell you, that got one of the committee members in a tizzy. His knickers were definitely in a bunch. I was out mowing my lawn and then taking care of some items around the house and noticed I had a couple of missed calls on my cell phone when I finished up. So I cleaned up, had dinner, just sat down in the living room. Well, I would not have heard the calls anyway because of that awesome iPhone feature that silences all calls that come in from numbers that aren't in my contact list. So I never knew I had some missed calls. I thought nothing of the missed calls for a while because if somebody wanted to get back with me, they would have left a voicemail. If there's no voicemail, it must be a telemarketer or a wrong number. So a couple hours after dinner, I sat down to check my email. Boy, did it seem like Representative Todd from out near Jackson, Tennessee was a bit miffed at my offering to provide the committee members an example of how to fulfill an oath to the Constitution. That kind of gets me excited that I made somebody mad and paid attention to an email I sent. So I'm going to give him a few more days to stew before I reach out to him. 
hopefully he'll listen to this podcast. Maybe take some notes, you know what I mean? When I do reach out to him, I will let you all know how the phone call goes. But another representative that was in that email list got the email and replied that he agrees with the points in my email and will do all that he can. In other news, we're also working on a new sponsor for the podcast. As soon as I know more, the audience will as well. A hint though, it will be beneficial to listeners of the podcast that are from out of state or out of town that want a vacation here in the Smokies. Alright, so now back to the topic of liberty. Like I mentioned earlier, there are two peaceful options available to us that we can use to rein in Washington, D.C. and begin to restore our liberty. The first option to regain some of our liberty is through the states asserting their role in the parent-child relationship between themselves and the federal government. They can accomplish this through a process called nullification. This option, though, requires that the legislative and executive branches of state governments be courageous and proactive. The second option also goes through the state legislatures. The states have the ability, under Article 5 of the Constitution, to call for a convention of states to propose and pass amendments to the Constitution. We'll go over these two methods in a general overview today, but I want to encourage the audience to investigate both investigate them on your own. It is my belief that these two methods are the safest and less likely to lead to conflict, methods that are available to us that we can use to reign in Washington, D.C. But, like I said, it's going to take courage to accomplish them, though. Courage by the electorate, that's you and I, to engage with our representatives at the state level to get the ball rolling on both methods. Then it's going to require courage by those same elected officials to act in our state capitals. There are too many politicians afraid of that word nullification because they believe it harkens back to the time of slavery in our republic. Nullification is the boogeyman of politics. Over the past few months, I've brought this term up with some elected officials here in the state of Tennessee on multiple occasions. In fact, the Tennessee Assembly brought up some legislation about nullification, but it only had to do with presidential executive orders. That doesn't take it far enough. Remember, presidential executive orders are not law. They only affect the executive branch of the government. Like I said, I brought this term up with some elected officials here in the state of Tennessee on a few occasions, even offered to buy them books on it. But what do you think their first reaction to hearing that word was? course, it was met with skepticism because they incorrectly understood that the states attempted to use nullification with regards to slavery. It was actually started over taxes, or, or tariffs to be more precise. And these tariffs were imposed by the federal government in 1828 and again modified in 1832. Remember those dates, 1828 and 1832. When did the Civil War start? That was in the 1860s. So this nullification started 30 years before the Civil War broke out. It is convenient for the usurpers or the aristocracy that a doctrine advocated by two of the authors of the Constitution of the United States is discredited by linking it to slavery. Keep in mind that history books are always written by the winners of conflicts. In attempting to discredit nullification, people are incorrectly taught that it is tied directly to slavery. 
it is not a coincidence that the president at the time of the nullification crisis in the United States of America that wanted to use force to impose the federal government's will on the people of a sovereign state was the founder of the Democrat Party. And I'm sad to say he comes from the state of Tennessee. Big government, centralized, powerful government, has been the core of the Democrat Party platform from its inception. But they don't teach that in our government schools, though. After all, do you think the government's going to teach methods about how to rein in the government? It's not going to happen. Here are some of the thoughts our founding fathers had about nullification. In 1798, Thomas Jefferson first introduced the term nullification. 1798, right around the beginning of our republic. The term starts with a self-evident point that a federal law that violates the Constitution is not a law at all. Think back to the enumerated powers that Congress holds. We talked about them. Those are the clauses in Article 1, Section 8 that we discussed. Any bill that Congress passes that is not covered by the clauses in Section 8 are, in effect, unconstitutional. So if Congress does pass a bill, it is up to the states, those original parties to the compact that created the federal government, to declare it unconstitutional and to refuse to enforce it. It's as simple as that. Nullification is the shield the people of a state, through their state legislatures, can place between themselves and an overreaching federal government. A critical point to nullification, and the reasons one of the authors of the Constitution advocated for it is, the federal government cannot be the sole arbiter of what is and what is not constitutional. It's up to the people. Also, Alexander Hamilton one of the founders, and who was a huge proponent of a strong central government when he was drafting the Constitution, wrote in Federal 78 that no legislative act contrary to the Constitution, meaning those acts passed that are outside the scope of the enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8, can in fact be a valid law. He, Hamilton, believed that the courts would end up putting this right. Hamilton, however, did not see the future politicization of the Supreme Court like we have seen today. He also didn't foresee the Supreme Court assuming powers outside its constitutional authority. In 1825, the governor of Kentucky, a Mr. Joseph Desha, stated, What chance for justice have the states when the usurpers, there's that word again, I love it, of their rights are made their judges, meaning the Congress passing laws outside the scope of Article 1, Section 8, and telling us they're constitutional. What other form of justice do we have? Well, it's the states. He further stated that it will become the duty of the state governments to protect themselves from encroachments and their citizens from oppression. Tennessee's Governor Bill Lee should read that or listen up here. By refusing obedience to unconstitutional mandates. I've already mentioned two of the clauses in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution already abused the most by federal government, but there is another. The two that I mentioned before were the General Welfare and the Necessary and Proper Clause. The third one that they abuse is the Commerce Clause. When we talked about the General Welfare Clause, it related to the enumerated power of taxing. It, I'm sorry to inform all the liberals out there, 
was not meant to create a welfare state or a system of federal welfare. General welfare meant that it was in the general welfare of the country that the Congress could impose taxes to pay for the debt incurred by the federal government. It wasn't put in place to become a self-licking ice cream cone of creating debt by providing welfare and raising taxes to pay for that welfare. But sadly, we all know how excited liberals get when they hear the term welfare. The big government liberals want as many people as possible dependent upon the government. As for the necessary and proper clause, James Madison, you know, he's, again, one of those people intimately involved with writing the Constitution. Not one of those people from this century that are interpreting the Constitution, nor calling it a living document stated this clause does not give any supplementary powers, but that this clause was necessary to be compatible with the character of a federal government with particular and defined powers, not general and indefinite powers. So we get back to that commerce clause. Its original and clearly stated intent was that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. Thanks to a federal government power grab and a loose interpretation of that clause by a weak and enabling Supreme Court, the word commerce went from trade or exchange to include all gainful activity, including activity between individuals in a single state that may be similar to activity in another state, giving Congress the power to regulate both of them, even though they had nothing to do with each other. That is just sickening the amount of power grabs. So one of the primary authors of our Constitution stated that the true barriers of our liberty are the state governments. They are to stand between us and an overreaching federal government. Jefferson's view on the Supreme Court was a bit different from Hamilton, though. He believed that to rely on the court to be the ultimate deciders of constitutional questions would put our country under the despotism of an unelected oligarchy. He knew and stated as much that the ultimate power of people in our republic is we the people. He wrote, and I quote here, Whensoever the general government assumes undelegated power, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. The federal government cannot decide for itself what the limits on its powers are, nor can any part of the federal government, of which the Supreme Court is part of, hold a monopoly on the interpretation of those powers. He further stated in 1799, in response to a resolution from Kentucky, that nullification is the rightful remedy against any infractions of the Constitution by the federal government. So in summary, one of the primary authors of the Constitution of the United States of America views on nullification is that it is the primary method for states to protect their citizens from an overreaching federal government. Of course, that is a very unpopular opinion with today's aristocracy, those usurpers of our liberty. Nullification is incorrectly linked with slavery for one purpose and one purpose only, to delegitimize the concept. Because the concept is dangerous to those that seek to obtain more power over our everyday lives and put us all in generational debt bondage, multi-generational debt bondage. 
To find out more about nullifications, go out and read the wonderful book, Nullification, How to Resist Tyranny in the 21st Century. It was written by Thomas Woods. The book was originally published in 2010 and it is becoming more and more applicable each day. This was the book I told my state representatives I was willing to purchase each of them and send it to them if they would actually read it. None of them have taken me up on the offer yet, though. So it would take great courage for states to actually do this, though. One of the reasons state legislatures do not have the courage to do this is because of their addiction to federal dollars. As I mentioned in the weekend update, more than a third of our state's annual budget comes from federal money. And our elected officials here in the state are awfully proud of that fact. They'll point it out and say, look, the feds will be pulling up some of this money. Well, where do the feds get that money? From the same people the state gets its money, you and I. Our sweat equity pays for everything all levels of government do. For two-thirds of the state's budget, there's no middleman. But for the other one-third, we have the completely inefficient middleman of Uncle Sam who has no concept of the value of money. Always keep that in mind when there is a spending proposal from the state that touts federal money being kicked in. The source of federal and state money is all the same. It is you and I. Let's pause now for a word from a supporter of this podcast. For all my listeners that live in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, I want to give a huge shout out to one of my all-time favorite car mechanics and longtime good friend, Glenn Moser. He is a supporter of this podcast and the owner-operator of Professional Auto, located at 5900 Thurston Avenue, Suite Alpha, in Virginia Beach. Phone number is 757-962-0102. Not only is Glenn an extremely talented mechanic, but he is also a great American and a staunch supporter of our constitutional rights. My family and I relied on Glenn and Professional Auto for all of our vehicle needs when we lived in the Hampton Roads, Virginia area. Quality work at a fair price and service with a smile are what you will receive when you take your vehicle to Professional Auto. I encourage all my listeners there in the Hampton Roads area to look them up if your car needs work. Again, that is Professional Auto, 5900 Thurston Avenue, Suite Alpha in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and the phone number is 757-962-0102. Welcome back. Like I said earlier, I'd like you all to go out and purchase and read that book. It gives you great insights, and you can use that to inform your elected representatives. But let's get to the other peaceful method to rein in an out-of-control federal government, and it comes straight from our Constitution. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's Article 5 of the Constitution of the United States of America. It states... The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or, now here's the important part, on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call, shall call, gives no wiggle room there, if two-thirds of the states apply for it, Congress has to call a convention for proposing amendments which, in either case, shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution. So right from the Constitution, it gives the states the power to amend the Constitution to rein in the federal government. 
the Founding Fathers specifically put this clause in, recognizing that the states, again, those parties that created the federal government, can amend the Constitution to control the federal government. All amendments throughout our republic's history have only come from Congress, though, not the states. As the Article 5 states, the individual states, have this same power, though. The Founding Fathers recognized there would be a need for this in the future when the federal government would take no action to further limit itself. Do you actually think any of the usurpers in Washington, D.C. would propose an amendment to the Constitution that would limit their ability to steal your sweat equity, to steal your liberty? They relish their power, and they like to twist the words of the Constitution to grow their power. They love placing themselves in and staying in a position of power of the, over the everyday lives of you and I. There have been some members of Congress that have proposed legislation regarding term limits, though. But like any other law proposed and passed, a new Congress can come right in and change it. A constitutional amendment is altogether different, though. It requires a much higher threshold to pass it or repeal it. That's why they're so rare. Legislation is not the way to get this done. Of the 27 amendments to our Constitution, only one has ever been repealed, and that too had to go through the amendment process. It was made difficult by design. So a convention of states is one of the only peaceful ways to limit the federal government's power and to do it at the source, the Constitution. I routinely share the Convention of States organization's information on my blog and social media sites. And I know there are many people out there that are afraid of what can happen at a constitutional convention. They believe the myth that it could become a runaway convention and pass anything they wanted, and our Constitution could be done away with entirely. Well, many of these myths or lies about a Convention of States that are spread about what could or could not happen are spread for a reason. These lies are told to prevent it from happening. A runaway convention is virtually impossible. How can a convention become a runaway one in passing amendments when you must get 38 states to agree on each individual amendment? These lies are told, and mostly by those that would be impacted with limiting their power. The aristocracy, the usurpers, are not interested in a convention of states convening and passing amendments that would dramatically reduce their ability to further steal our liberty. They want to continue the multi-generational theft of our sweat equity. The resolutions that call for a convention are passed with specific purposes for the convention as well. These state-passed resolutions propose only specific reasons for the convention, meaning the conventions can only consider the amendments based upon the state's resolutions. One of the amendments these resolutions in state capitals that have passed so far include an amendment limiting federal power. And don't you know the usurpers do not want that to happen. They also have an amendment that's mandating fiscal responsibility. Heaven forbid the federal government will have to budget like they forced the rest of us to. No more out-of-control spending. They force us, every American family, to live with a balanced budget. So now they should have to live with one as well. These resolutions also call for an amendment imposing term limits. 
because the usurpers have created lifelong careers of stealing our liberty. And just to let you know, none of the information I discuss here on this podcast is secret ingredients to anything that only a few people can access. This information is out there for everybody to investigate and learn about. If you're hearing this information for the first time, go out, investigate, learn about it. Make sure you share what you've learned about with your elected representatives. If none of this information is new to you, are you sharing it with your family, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers? And if not, why not? The time is now to reform and restore our constitutional republic. The longer apathy sets in, the harder and more bloodier it could be to restore our freedoms. An old saying applies here. You can vote yourself into socialism, but you cannot vote yourself out. Remember, not voting is an input in how the government operates. No input is an input. Keeping your voice silent is acquiescing to the powers that be. We will have to fight ourselves out of socialism if we stay the course. Those that control the reins of government will do their best to stay in power. You see that happening right now in D.C. There are people that were merely present at the Capitol on the 6th of January that are still being held without bond in jail cells. Meanwhile, the party that is in control of our government right now contributed to or solicited money for bail for the hundreds of people that burned our cities all across the Fruited Plain last summer. The Democrat Party, well, we just can't limit it to the Democrat Party. It's mainly all the usurpers, all the aristocracy, live by the rules for thee and not for me. Remember that when you go into a voting booth. Remember that when you're considering candidates for elected office. Sorry, I just had to uh, pause for a moment in recording there because the squeals of delight that were coming from the upstairs part of the house. It seems like the chief executive producer of the podcast, the lovely and talented Kaylee, just received her proposal for marriage. So, I've got a wedding to pay for. Congratulations to Eric and Kaylee. Now back to the podcast. You know, we just observed Memorial Day here in our nation. And I think the best way to honor those that gave their last full measure for our great republic is to be the citizen sovereign they fought and died for. Before we close the show, I would like to leave you with this from God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. It is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. For you are free, yet you are God's slaves, so do not use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Using your freedom to not participate in who does or does not become servant leaders in the halls of government allows evil to take root in our nation. Apathy always allows tyranny to flourish. Be honorable and do your part to silence the tyrants, the usurpers that have been directing the course of our republic for decades from all political parties. Until next week, stand in the arena. Reveille, it's time to wake up.